So we find ourselves today in Matthew chapter 12 as we go through. And Matthew 12 sets a, a break in the Gospel of Matthew where Jesus just got done sending out his 12 disciples, the apostles, and brought them back. And they were amazed at what they were allowed to do in Jesus' name. And we saw last chapter, chapter 11, a little bit of pushback from the religious leaders. But today we're going to see a rejection of really Israel in that they come to a place where, I don't know, it's a scary place to be for sure, but they are going to attribute to Jesus in this chapter. We're not going to do the whole chapter. Um, There's two of my favorite verses in all of the Bible in Matthew 11 at the end and then in where we're going to end today. And so I'm going to tie up there. Uh, we'll do less than half of the chapter today. But it is a break in the, in the flow of what Ma- Matthew is doing in his gospel. And it's the rejection. Really, Jesus is being rejected. It's not like God is rejecting the nation of Israel. The, the nation of Israel is rejecting God and God's plan for them. And for us, you know, I mean, it's good that we understand that we want to partner with God and we want to be on the side of God. We want to be on God's team, on God's plan. We want to be careful that we don't insist what our life is supposed to look like to God. We can can request, we can pray, we can um, ask God um, for things. But when we get to a place where we're demanding that God has to do something in our life, then we're taking God off the throne and we're putting ourselves there or our will or our knowledge or our understanding. And that's not really a walk of faith. A walk of faith says that we trust God even when we don't understand. We trust God even when it hurts. We, we trust God even when it looks like something else. And so as, I, as I'm reading through this and I'm studying and I'm, um, I'm watching even people in the world, how they navigate through life, I see a lot of people that reject God because God didn't show up for them in the way that they thought he was supposed to. And I know life is hard and I know that life gets difficult, but we have to allow God to be God. And he is able to see things that we can't. And he knows knows our struggle and he knows our pain. And so it's not an issue of God making our life perfect as much as it's an issue of God promises to be with us in the midst of the difficulty. And that should for us be enough. So Matthew's Gospel chapter 12. Let's pray. Father, we ask your blessing upon this time that we have in your word. And we just pray that you would continue to speak to us through your word, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse one says, at that time Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath and his disciples were hungry and began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. And so the significant thing here is it's the Sabbath. And so the religious leaders, the the nation of Israel, they're going to see this and they're going to think that it's against the law. Jesus is going to point to two examples to show them that. It wasn't against the law to go through a grain field and to be able to pluck, whether it was grapes on a vine or um, grain, Uh, In fact, it was written in the law, in the book of Deuteronomy, I'll read it to you, it's chapter 23, verses 24 and 25, it says, when you come into your neighbor's vineyard, you may eat your fill of grapes at your pleasure, but you shall not put any in your container. 
When you come into your neighbor's standing grain, you may pluck the heads with your hand, but you shall not use a sickle on your neighbor's standing grain. And so in a nutshell, this was God's welfare program. If there's poor people, if there are visitors visiting your town and they don't have money, the wherewithal, to be able to go and buy themselves food, purchase themselves food, God's system was when you grain your field, when you go to harvest, not grain, but when you go to harvest your field, hey, why don't you leave the edges and whatever falls on the floor, leave it. Leave it for the poor, leave it for the the foreigner, the visitor, that when they come, they know that they can go to a field and they can do a little work go and grab them some grain or go and grab them some fruit. And they, that's allowable. That's permissible. And so that's exactly what's going on here. They're, they're walking through the grain fields. The disciples are hungry and they're picking some grain and they're eating it. And the disciples, I mean, the, uh, the response of the religious leader, the Pharisees, verse two, and when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. So again, it was lawful, but their contention is it wasn't lawful on the Sabbath because it said that you weren't to harvest on the Sabbath. And so it becomes a, what do they call it? Semantics. It becomes this slicing and dicing of the law and what God meant when he said. And so in order for them to understand the law, what they did was they wrote another book that would come alongside of the law called the what? Anybody know what that book was called? It starts with an M. Brian knows. Mishnah. The Mishnah. And so the Mishnah was a lengthy, detailed account of what the law meant when it said. What did God mean when he said? And so it was like we would use a, a commentary, if you will, or a book of interpretation, except that that Mishnah was held in equal standing of the word of God, if not sometimes over because Jesus would eventually tell the religious leaders, you guys are putting tradition above the very word of God. God didn't mean any of that when he said that. And so nonetheless, we have the Old Testament under the law and they thought that they were doing well to interpret the law and then obey it. And so they're watching Jesus, his disciples are going through the grain fields, they're pulling you know, harvesting according to the Pharisees. And Jesus is going to help them. Verse three, but he said to them, have you not read what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the showbread, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests. And so first what he does is he takes them back to an account. And I love this about Jesus. Could Jesus have given them the, proper interpretation of the law. Could he have done that? Yeah. Okay. Does he do that? No. But he's going to help them understand. Could God convince the entire world of truth? Yes. Why doesn't he? We have a free will. He wants us to exercise our faith. Faith is the language of eternity. Faith is trust. And we're able to see all of these things as it relates to the existence of God, creation, our own miraculous bodies and how they function and 
and, and do what they do. Just creation. You look at an animal and just its majesty, you know, a soaring eagle or something that, you know, just you're like, wow. And it just screams creator. Creation screams creator. And so God has given us the witness of creation and he's given us the witness of conscience. He's given us all of these things so that we can exercise the faith that everybody has, that everybody's exercising every day. If you believe in evolution, you have to believe in evolution by faith. Why? Because you weren't there seven billion years ago, were you? Or however many billions it is, right? And so origins, where did we come from? If you believe that it was God the creator, you do that by faith. Sounds logical, way more logical than something came from nothing because that contradicts the very science you say you believe in. So Jesus could convince people, but he's going to give them examples. So that as he's giving them examples, they can take the faith that they already have. We all have faith. The Bible says that God has given to every man a measure of faith. So that we take the faith that we have and and we just logically see it through and we're able to say, yeah, it makes more sense. That makes more sense. So they have a misunderstanding. He points to David. And I think this is in 1 Samuel 21, if if I remember um, but in 1 Samuel 21, remember, we, we studied it not too long ago on Sunday, where David's men, David's a fleeing, right? He goes into the Abiathar, 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 the priest, and he tells him, hey, you got any food in this place? And he's like, no, only the showbread. I got yesterday's old showbread, the new one's up, but we have this old one. He's like, all right, give that to me and, and for my men. And they take it. And so, I, I did learn something this week in studying. We have to be careful to say that human need is greater than law. Um, I think that's definitely the case. Kind of like when I train bus drivers, I tell them that safety is higher than the law. So let's say somebody's, you're driving a school bus and you got kids on the bus and you're driving in your proper lane and somebody rings out of control on the other oncoming traffic and they're coming right at you. Could you break the law to go around them in the opposite lane that's clear to avoid getting in an accident so you don't hurt the kids and yourself and them? Yeah, wouldn't that make sense to break the law for safety's sake? Absolutely, right? So we have safety as our number one priority, then the law, and then everything else as priorities, right? Um, So in this case, I, I think God is definitely intent on Human need is greater than anything, but I think even as we walk by faith, trusting God and taking him at his word, God will never let you down. And so I think that's very important too. So I, I don't know if I'm, I'm willing to go as far as to say that on, based on this passage. Verse five, or have you not read in the law, Jesus goes on to give him another example, that on the Sabbath, the priest in the temple profane the Sabbath and are blameless. How do the priests profane the Sabbath on, um, on Saturday when they're working in the temple? What are they doing? They're offering all these sacrifices. They're butchering and doing all of this work that was forbidden on the Sabbath, but they have to do it because people are coming to the temple to offer sacrifices to God. And so in that sense, he's helping the religious leaders see and understand, guys, there's something greater than these laws. There's something greater than these rules. These rules were something that was to show you a part of God and the heart of God. But when you have God, you don't need the rules. 
because you have God. God is what the rules were all about. He goes on to say in verse six, yet I say to you that in this place there is one greater than the temple. Who's he talking about? He's talking about himself. We go to the temple to seek God. Uh, Guys, newsflash, God's in front of you. (laughs) Do you need to go to the temple to petition God when God is in front of you in human form? No, you have the substance right there. Verse seven, but if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless for the son of man is Lord even of the Sabbath, God forbid. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Quote it out of, is that Malachi or Hosea? Anybody have a study Bible? You'll have a note in your margin that says, I think it's Hosea or Malachi. One of those two. I think it's Hosea. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Does God desire sacrifice? Hosea? Okay. 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 I don't have any notes on that. I just, I know as I was reading this week. So I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Does God require or desire sacrifice? Yeah. He's the one that established it in the law, right? But before he desires sacrifice, he, he would much rather have mercy that we would treat people right, that we would be respectful of one another. So you see religious people all the time, they'll talk about how many times they read the Bible. I've counseled husbands and wives a lot. And I'll have a husband who's A-type personality, and he'll boast at how godly he is, according to his definition, because of all the rituals that he keeps. How much he reads the Bible, how much he prays, how much he does all of these religious things, how often he never misses church, and yet he treats his wife like she's a dog. And I'll be like, you don't see something wrong with this? God doesn't care how much you read your Bible and how much you pray, and all of these things, if you can't treat people right, and how much more the the person that God has entrusted with you as the only one that's your spouse, the one that you get to express how much you love God to her, and I'm not saying that it's bad to read the Bible or to pray or to do all of those things. Do those things, but don't forsake the heart of God, right? And so That's a big, gigantic thing for God, that we would treat people appropriately, that we would communicate with people respectfully and honorably, and that's what God is pleased with. And so the dumbest Christian can please God by how he or she treats people. You don't have to have a college degree for that. You don't have to know the 66 books of the Bible in order and be able to quote from every one of them. But you can treat people right. You can be nice to people. And a lot of times it's in our communication. He goes on in verse nine. Now when he had departed from there, he went into their synagogue. And behold, there was a man who had a withered hand and they asked him saying, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Notice that they might accuse him what do you think they want to accuse jesus of okay and now it's the religious leaders once again and where do you think the guy with the withered hand came from i mean what a plant huh what a setup so jesus just gets done with saying but if you had known what this means i desire mercy 
and not sacrifice. Whew, right over their heads. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. I would rather that you treat people right and well than all of these sacrifices and these obedience to the minutest detail of the law. Wow, that's commendable. Oh, that's awesome. But you're missing the big picture, the biggest picture. And so there's this guy in the synagogue and they asked him that they might accuse him. Verse 11. Then he said to them, what man is there? This is Jesus now telling them, what man is there among you who has, it has one sheep and if it falls into the pit on the Sabbath, will not lay hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value then is a man than a sheep? Therefore, is, therefore it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. This is the second time that I notice, and again, there might be more. I didn't notice it before. But in, in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus did the same thing. But he, he shows humanity is more important than, than animals. And we have a world right now that doesn't realize that. You, know, you, you swat a fly, and people are ready. PETA will throw you in prison. You know, it's just, they'll, they'll throw you in jail and have you, you know, hung because they believe that all living things have equal value. Well, God doesn't. God doesn't want us to hurt unnecessarily animals. God doesn't want us to abuse animals, right? That's just wrong. That's, that's just bad. But he says it right here of how much more value than is man than a sheep. Sheep are pretty big animals and they're pretty cute too, huh? But they're not more important or significant than humanity. Why? Humanity is the only one in God's creation that is created in the image of God with a soul and a spirit. Animals may have a soul. They have a personality, right? You have pets that have a little personality, but they don't have a spirit. They don't connect with God on that eternal way that we can. So I just thought that was neat because he did that in seven too. I think he said, uh, you know, uh, something about the birds of the, of the nest and how much more important are you than the birds? I take care of the birds. I'm going to take care of you. I think it's John chapter six or something. So Jesus uses this analogy because, and basically sheep was their money. So to us today, he'd be saying, if you dropped your wallet down the sewer and you had the tools to be able to take that, you know, sewer top off, would you be busting out with your tools to get your wallet that fell that you just got your check on Friday? Yeah, heck yeah. Every single one of us would be doing it, right? I'm not going to leave my check down there. I'm not going to leave my money down there. Well, he says that about their sheep. How many of you, if you had a sheep and it, and it, you know, this happened to it, among you, uh, it falls into a pit and you're not going to lay hold and lift it out? Of course you are. Your sheep are your money. Your sheep is your, your, your well-being, right? Your means to be able to trade and do whatever with. And so that's your livelihood. And I think that's hypocrisy on their part in a big way because they're looking at Jesus as if he's worse than them and Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. And he's not just the fulfillment because he's God. He's the fulfillment because in his humanity, he kept it perfectly. He obeyed it to the T in his humanity. But they've confused it and convoluted it. Verse 13, then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. Can a man with a lame hand stretch out his hand? No, he can't. But at God's word, can a man with a lame hand stretch out his hand? Can you do at God's command what God is calling you to do? Yes. The word is God's commandments are God's enablement. If God is commanding you to do something, he will enable you to do it. By faith, you have to obey it, though. 
So never having the ability to stretch out his hand at Jesus' command, he's going to stretch out his hand and be healed. Then he said, verse 13, to the man, stretch out your hand, and he stretched it out, and it was restored as whole as the other. Then the Pharisees went out, and notice what they did, and plotted against him how they might destroy him. That is scary. Where do we fall under the guise of the Pharisees as Christians? Where do we fit in this category? Anytime we doubt God, anytime we are ready to be God's counselor, anytime we're ready to remind God how difficult things are, we we begin this little slippery slope slide into being God's judge. And so we got to be very careful of that. Verse 15. But when Jesus knew it, he withdrew from there and great multitudes followed him and he healed them all. Yet he warned them not to make him known that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet saying, behold, my servant, whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him and he will declare justice to the Gentiles. First time, now these Gentiles are being mentioned that the Messiah is gonna go to the Gentiles and it's quoting from Isaiah, right? The Old Testament. And so that was gonna happen, that was prophesied, but who did Jesus go to first and who did he tell his disciples to go to? He told them specifically, don't go to the homes of the Gentiles. Go to the nation of Israel. Go to the 12 tribes of the nation of Israel. And if they don't receive you, dust the, you know, shake the dust off of your feet. Pronounce a blessing to those who receive you, a curse to those who won't receive you. And so this is officially the rejection of Israel to the Messiah, to Jesus in the scriptures, where Jesus is now going to go to the multitudes. Um, verse 19, he will not quarrel nor cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break and smoking flax he will not quench till he sends forth justice to victory and in his name Gentiles will trust. So that's where we're gonna end, but we're not done because these are two sets of verses in the Bible that are my favorite. I'll, I'll give you the big picture of what's taking place here and how we can apply that. I think this will be the third time I'm saying it. We are called to walk by faith. God being God has these incredible attributes that we don't possess. All-powerful, omnipotent. All-knowing, omniscient. Everywhere, all the time, omnipresent. He knows what's best for us, but he's preparing us for eternity. The Bible says in Matthew, uh, Romans chapter eight, verse 28, that all things work together for good to those who love God and to those who are called according to his purpose. And, and 29 says that the purposes of God are to conform us into the image of his son. And so sometimes on this side of eternity, we're not gonna see all of the fulfillments of the good that God is working out. But on the other side of eternity, 
when we look at it according to Revelation and people who are already in heaven, the elders, when they see God's judgment being poured out, they say true and righteous are his judgments. When we are in heaven, we are going to look back at life and say, Jesus, you did that perfect, man. I see what you were doing now. On this side, sometimes it's hard. Sometimes it's difficult. And a lot of things cloud that. Our own sinful nature clouds that. The world clouds that. Satan confuses things sometimes in this world, right, for us. He's a schemer. He's a conniver. And he, he just messes with us sometimes. And he knows our weaknesses. And he knows, but God is working all things together for good in our life. And so by faith, we have to take him at his word And when we don't, and when we begin to insist and tell God what he needs to be doing or not needs to be doing, because sometimes that's prayer, right? In prayer, we have requests and and we petition God. But when we're demanding, when we, let's say we're pounding on the table and telling God what he has to do or else, then that's kind of where we become like this group where we're insisting our will upon God, okay? I think you can request Paul prayed three times, right? Thorn in the flesh. And then God's word came to him. My grace is sufficient because my power is perfected in your weakness. The result of that in Paul's heart was, therefore I will most gladly boast about my weakness because when I'm weak, then I'm strong. Right? So that's kind of our application as far as the, the, the rejection of the Pharisees and the religious leaders, the nation of Israel in general, to Jesus, Okay? Now, the two verses we're going to look at. Jump back to chapter 11 and look at the last three verses. Starting at verse 28. So this is Matthew chapter 11. Starting at verse 28. Jesus says, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. So the heart of God is that the things that he wants to give us, the responsibilities that we hold uh, in life as Christians, they should be easy and, and a light load. Anytime we feel burdened, maxed out, the weight of the world or circumstances on our shoulder or anytime we feel that people are putting too much on us, then we haven't given Jesus our cares, our burdens. He's telling us to cast our cares upon him, right? He says, come to me, all you who labor and heavy laden, I will give you rest. Take my yoke, learn from me. I am gentle. You will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy, my burden is light. So we're called to give him those things that people put on us and those things that weigh us down. But we're also called in responsibility to take his yoke upon us. His burden is easy, his load is light, okay? Now we jump back over to chapter 12 and we couple that verse with verse 20. A bruised reed he will not break and smoking flax he will not quench. This is one of my all-time favorite verses in the Bible. Part of it is because 
I'm a Pharisee at heart. I wish that wasn't true. I'm a legalist. I don't want to be. I don't know if it has to do with my upbringing. I don't know if it has to do with my inferiority complex. I don't know if it has to do with the fact that I have um, a lot of um, maybe shame and guilt and all this stuff from being a sinner. I'm just a sinner and I want to make God love me. I want to I want to I want to make God like happy that he chose me. And so I want to somehow I, I want him to be like, good choice. All right. Yeah, I made a good choice in picking you and loving you. And something deep inside of my insecurity drives that. And it's maybe gotten better as I've been a Christian now for like a long time, 30 something years. Right? 21, 31, 41, 50. Yeah, 31 years. That's crazy. That's a long time. But through and through, my sinful proclivities and who I am in my upbringing, I just, I, I, nobody ever really received me and accepted me. So I find it hard to believe that God really just receives me and accepts me. And Satan knows that. So Satan is constantly just pounding at me and just beating me up. Boom, boom, boom. Oh, I'm not worthy. And so when... This scripture and its understanding, a bruised reed he will not break and a smoking flax he will not quench. It just does something for me. Let me read you what Chuck Smith says on on just this one verse right here. Chuck Smith says, because reeds are top heavy, they become bent, brittle, and they crush easily. This is like the person who becomes crushed by the weight of the world and the burden of sin. When that sinful, hurting person comes to Jesus, he doesn't break them. Rather, he restores them to completeness. The Lord doesn't want to break or destroy you. He wants to heal you. The smoking flax is a reference to the last piece of wick in an oil lamp. Though the oil is gone, the wick continues to smoke. The natural thing to do is pinch it out and start over with a new wick and some fresh oil. But when Jesus looks at a life that is smoldering and passionless, He doesn't pinch it out. Instead, if that life will turn to him, he will pour in the fresh oil of the spirit and fan your fan uh, back into a bright light. Jesus is a threat to the needy. He is our healer. And so in this world, we have all of these people that are hurting, that are confused, that are misunderstood, that are marginalized, that are beat and battered by life, that Lorraine can share that two people at her job came up to her in this last week from others in their life that have committed suicide. People are hopeless in this world and they feel that there's no way out often. Jesus is the answer because a bruised reed. So you reed is in the marsh, you have these you know, plants and they have reeds. They take the reed, and they reed, they shape it, and then they put it in a wind instrument. So if you've ever seen a saxophone, or or what else would play a a clarinet, flute, those all carry a reed. A bruised one was really worthless. It was good for nothing but to be thrown away. The world 
throws and discards. Satan uses people. He uses and abuses them. A doctor that had the care of the Olympic team was indicted today for I think 125 years. Blip on the screen of what that guy deserved for what he did to all of those girls in gymnastics. Just forever. Sometimes in front of the parents, the parents would be here and he would set up things so that they couldn't see what he was doing as he's physically abusing, sexually abusing their daughters. For years and years he did this. And so these people in the world, they go through difficulties and they are that bruised reed. The world chews them up and spits them out, just throws them away. But God's like, come to me. In that example there of a bruised reed, he will not break. What would he have to do to not break somebody who's at their end, somebody who's, who's just been thrown away? He deals with people with such tenderness, such gentleness, such care that he knows what we need. He knows the right amount, to what degree, when, what needs to be spoken, how it needs to be spoken. And so it's to Jesus that we need to run. It's to Jesus that we need to rely upon. As far as the smoking flax, and you think of that wick that's just about to just, ah, it's gonna be blown out. Jesus says, not on, not on my watch. Not on my watch. I'll fan that flame. I'll give the passion where the passion is gone. I'll give the zeal where there is none. I'll bring back an enthusiasm where it's lost. And that's what God does as we go to the source. And as I take into account this chapter and where we're at, you look at religion and religion is just this ripoff, always over-promising and under-delivering. Always this thing of shooting for the stars. And the thing we really long for, as much as we study the word of God, and the word of God is to point to the one that wrote it, the one that gave it to us. It's Jesus that we need. It's Jesus that we long for. It's Jesus that we need to look to. And we study the scripture so that we can understand God's character. And we understand in his word what he's pleased with and what he's not pleased with. And we want to obey that because he loves us so well. We want to love him back. But it's not really the word. It's the author of the word that we long for. And so be careful in your life to spend time with Jesus. Be careful that you don't just do these religious things and Jesus is outside knocking on the door saying, Can anybody let me in? Because I want a fellowship with you. Isn't that what he tells the church in Revelation chapter three? Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone would open the door and let me in, I'll come in and sup with him. I'll dine with him. What he's saying is I'll fellowship with you. And so don't read the word without understanding that it's the word that we read to be able to get close to the one who gave us the word. Don't pray absent-mindedly without taking into consideration. I'm talking to the creator of the universe right now. I'm talking to the lover of my soul right now. I'm talking to the one who needs me. I love that scripture in Romans that says, sometimes we don't even know what to pray. And so we just, what does it say? We groan? We just groan. Ugh. 
Some people take that as we pray in tongues. We don't understand what we're praying when we pray in tongues. Maybe that's a reference to tongues. But I think it's just recognition that God knows our request before we ask it. God knows what troubles us before we come to him. He knows all of that. And a lot of people will think that it's in the length of these religious things. All of those things are supposed to connect us to the God that we have a relationship with. Make sure that you have a relationship with God. It's not the things as much as it's the God that is pointing to the things, right? How ridiculous would it be for us to worship a shadow or to hug a shadow? Regal comes home from a you know, long day of work and, and Ella, his little daughter, runs up and jumps on his shadow and hugs the shadow. And we would say, Ella, your dad's right there. Why are you hugging the shadow? Daddy's right there. And so I think we need to be careful. So two of my favorite verses, sets of verses there, that bruised reed he will not break, smoking flax he will not quench. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy loaded, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. We have a responsibility. There's something that we should be doing, but it should be light, and it should not be a burden. And if it is a burden, and it's heavy, then we haven't given ours to God, and we haven't taken his on. And so I've watched people burn out throughout my walk with the Lord in church. And I think you'll never burn out if you're getting from the source and then giving from abundance. So my pastor used to say, go to the well twice as much with a bigger bucket. And out of that outflow, that's what you give. As opposed to, bless you, I'm tapped out, I'm done, I'm overwhelmed, oh my gosh, I can't do this anymore. I just got to stay home for three weeks and never come out of my closet because I'm just so overwhelmed. Okay, then you're not going to the source and getting filled. The Lord wants to so fill us that we can't help but spill on others. To me, God bless you, that's what ministry should be. Ministry should be an outflow of what I receive, that I'm receiving so much, I just got to share it. I just got to give it. I just got to do something with it. Bless you. And sometimes, I'm not saying that we always have the opportunity to do that in life, but I think that's kind of the concept.